Welcome to the Accelerate America podcast, brought to you by Emerson. My name is Michael Gary. I'm the editor of Accelerate America. In this month's Accelerate America podcast, I'm joined by my colleagues in Portland, Oregon, Derek Hamilton and Elise Heron. Hi, guys. Hi, Michael. Hi, Michael. How are you today? Very well. We'll also be hearing from Andre Patinaud of Emerson. Our discussion today will focus on this month's cover story about how natural refrigerants are being used in air conditioning, in particular a low-charge ammonia-packaged chiller used by Campbell at an industrial plant in Ohio for air conditioning. We're also going to discuss an important meeting that happened just this week in Sacramento, hosted by the California Air Resources Board. And we're going to look at Hannaford Supermarket's transcritical systems in New England. We're also going to hear from Andre Patinaud of Emerson about a column he wrote on the use of CO2 in industrial settings and ammonia in retail settings. A note to our listeners. You can read more about these topics and the rest of this month's issue by going to the Accelerate America website, accelerateNA.com. So first, our story about CARB, the California Air Resources Board. CARB launched a rulemaking process for incorporating the EPA's SNAP rules. Uh, they were seeking input from different stakeholders for adopting these SNAP HFC rules, as well as input on their short-lived climate pollutant strategy for phasing down HFCs. So the whole uh, motivation behind uh, CARB's interest in the SNAP rules is, of course, the regulatory uncertainty in the U.S. that followed a three-judge Court of Appeals ruling last August that barred the EPA from removing HFCs from its list of um, approved replacements for ozone-depleting refrigerants. This um, really threw into doubt whether these HFCs can, in fact, uh, be considered uh, delisted and, um, re and replaceable by natural refrigerants. So the ruling has been appealed by companies Camores, Honeywell, and the Nat Natural Resources Defense Council. Uh, the EPA, however, has not appealed the ruling, and there's no word yet on whether the appeals court is going to rehear the case. So in that climate of uncertainty, CARB announced that it would be um, starting rulemaking to, in fact, incorporate these SNAP rules in its own uh, regulatory scheme. What was the consensus, Derek, and you were at the meeting in Sacramento, what was the consensus of the meeting about whether these EPA rules will survive or whether California will have to adopt them? Yeah, Michael, thanks for that introduction and background to what's going on there. Yeah, like, like you said, I was down in Sacramento for the meeting. Overall, I'd say the mood was very positive. 
really having uh, attended the meeting, what I saw was that there was very little pushback from attendees in in the sense that um, there was very little concern expressed about the adoption of these rules at state level. Now, in terms of what might happen at federal level, I, I do think... Uh, things are still very uncertain, as you said. So the situation we have in California is that the Air Resources Board um, approved the short-lived climate pollutant strategy. Uh, and, and as part of that, as part of the bigger package of greenhouse gas reductions, um, there are some very uh, ambitious HFC reduction targets. Now, uh, the California Air Resources Board presented during this meeting that they have been uh, busy calculating and studying exactly how they will meet this target um, and, and bearing in mind that this target is a 2030 target so um, just over 12 years from now really now is the time that they have to be uh, making some progress to, to ensure that happens. Now in, in terms of broad numbers um, roughly 25% of the reductions um, are, are modelled to be coming uh, from from changes that will be part of the, the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. Um, another 25% of the required HFC reductions um, are, are proposed to come from the, the SNAP prohibitions uh, and the remainder would come from, from other HFC mitigation measure, measures that will be put in place through the, the SLCP strategy. So really, um, regardless of what happens at federal level, and it still is uncertain, what California are doing here is is they're stepping up and saying, we have a target, um, and in order to meet that target, we have to do more. Uh, and uh, we, we have to uh, adopt these SNAP rules to give some certainty to the industry and to help um, give them some comfort that they're on track to, to meet these targets. And And this is no small thing either for California as a state to be considering individually adopting these SNAP rules. I mean, California is the sixth largest economy in the world. Um, so the, the influence of California on the rest of the U.S. at least is is pretty profound. Um, so CARB is definitely sort of a leader in HFC phase down in the U.S. And this is just another demonstration of that leadership. Yeah, yeah I think, um, you know, the Air Resources Board should be applauded for, for making this move. I think it's, you know, it's a very definite indication to the industry of uh, where things are headed uh, in California. And I think that's that's uh, a very good thing. You know, the other thing we should note is that um, when it comes to the draft legislation that, that's now available on the CARB website, uh, and that, that will be open for, for public comment until November 10th. So that's worth noting for any listeners who, who are interested in, in being part of this process. Um, the, the draft legislation includes um, a clause whereby if the, the appeal um, against the EPA ruling is successful, then CARB would revert to the federal SNAP regulations. What this means is that they're not going to have state-level regulations in parallel um, with the, the federal regulations. And what they're doing is starting this rulemaking process um, really as a backstop to make sure that they're still covered just in case the appeal is not successful. What do you think, Michael, in terms of the, the appeal against the court decision? Do you think that that has some chance of being successful? Yeah. Um, well, my reading of it is that uh, the problem 
is that the EPA was not the entity that did the appeal. It was the interveners in the case, uh, Camores, Honeywell, and the NRDC. I mean, the EPA was actually the the the, the defendant, uh, you know, and as such, they would have the the best standing for an appeal. Uh, on the other hand, that doesn't mean that the court won't hear, hear uh, rehear the case based just on the interveners, but it's not as uh, as strong uh, as it would be if the EPA had 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 appealed. But we'll see. I think um, you know. It remains to be seen. Uh, the the uh, if it is in fact reheard, it would be reheard by the full uh, court of appeals in the District of Columbia, as opposed to the original uh, case that was heard by a three judge panel and only lost by a two to one decision. Um, the full the full panel would be probably more favorably disposed to the EPA's uh, original argument for regulating HFCs. Now, if um, the appeal is not successful. Uh, it could yet be taken to the Supreme Court. So it, it, there's really, um, you know, it's it's got a ways to go before it's resolved. Um, and uh, in the meantime, all of the original uh, SNAP regulations still apply until this is resolved. So that there's, there's no break from that. But I think this, what California is doing is certainly, um, as you say, uh, commendable. Um, and in fact, they expect uh, if they do incorporate the SNAP rules into California law, it'll take effect uh, next year, mid to late 2018. So it's not that distant in the future. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, they're they're moving now, um, and the timeline for this is that they propose um, that there will be a period of public comment uh, running up to the CARB board meeting in March of 2018. And uh, assuming that um, the the board vote to adopt this, it would come into effect um, in, in mid to late 2018. So that's the kind of timescale uh, we're, we're looking at. Um, and then following that is, is when CARB would move into their, uh, I should say, following the board meeting in March is when CARB would move into their um, stakeholder meetings and, and discussions regarding the, the details of the SLCP strategy, which would um, include the further HFC mitigation measures that, that are required to meet the SLCP targets. To, to make a point clear, also the SNAP provisions that CARB is considering adopting are, are, are only pertinent for stationary air conditioning uh, stationary refrigeration and air conditioning. So they're not adopting the the mobile uh, air conditioning and, and foam blowing agent uh, provisions. There are already some, some programs within California that apply to those. Good point. Although the refrigeration air conditioning, I think, makes up about two-thirds of the HFC emissions. Just uh, to, to conclude there, I think it's a smart move by CARB. Um, I think they're making sure that there's uh, going to be a rule in place regardless of what happens with the with with the court case, so um, I think it's a very positive sign. Yeah, absolutely. One last point about the uh, SLCP uh, program, and that is that um, it's very aggressive. It's online with what the Europeans are doing, uh, and that is prohibiting refrigerants with a GWP of 150 or greater in new refrigeration systems uh, that contain 50 or more pounds of refrigerant. So that's that's a very low GWP uh, requirement and certainly would support uh, natural refrigerants. 
and uh, I think augurs well for the uh, use of naturals in California. So moving on, we're going to discuss the um, cover story in uh, this month's issue, the October issue, which has to do with the use of natural refrigerants, not in refrigeration systems, but in air conditioning. Um, and in particular, we're looking at a low-charge ammonia package chiller produced by Azane uh, that's been installed at a Campbell Soup plant in Napoleon, Ohio, in the northwest part of the state. And it's being used uh, to generate air conditioning through an air handler. Um, the unit itself is sitting outside the building, and uh, it chills glycol to about 44 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, pipes that into an air handler that cools the air, and uh, that cool air is then used for comfort cooling in, in the uh, part of the building that does labeling and packaging of the soup products. So very interesting um, application. It's one of the first times that a low-charge package chiller is being used uh, for air conditioning in, a, in an industrial setting like this. So it's, it's really ahead of its time um, in, in the U.S. Uh, we're talking about. And um, there are other uh, companies uh, that have recently unveiled these low-charge ammonia chillers. Uh, Mayakawa is one. Uh, Evapco is another one. But uh, Azane um, has kind of taken the lead with this in terms of an air conditioning application. Of course, Azane is a division of Star Refrigeration Group based in the UK. And full disclosure, our, my colleague Derek Hamilton previously worked for Azane, uh, and we're happy to have him now with Sheko. But um, so he's very well versed in this technology. And um, tell me, Derek, what, what do you think is the. Uh, the uh, chance that this type of technology, this low-charge ammonia chiller, can be used, um, you know, as a replacement for HFC chillers, uh, you know, in, in, in industrial as well as um, other kinds of buildings like uh, office and retail buildings. In fact, in Europe, there's a Marks & Spencer department store using this kind of chiller. So the, the potential for this as an as an HFC replacement, uh, seems to be very strong. Yeah, I think, Michael, that's a, a, a good question. And, and really, uh, it's worth taking a step back and looking at why this type of packaged, low-charge ammonia system has been developed. Um, and in the case of this type of chiller, the, the, the packaged concept, and especially the air-cooled packaged concept, um, has been developed as... Uh, a solution to the the HFC phase out, um, the HFC phase down. First of all, in Europe, um, and subsequently in in the US. So, what what's key with a you know a chiller package such as this? Um, it, it can be deployed in much the same way as HFC chiller packages have been deployed in the past. So, you know, there's no um, central machinery room. Um, the, these chillers can be flexible in terms of their location um, and we've seen you, you've mentioned the, the, the various manufacturers um, who are making this type of chiller 
these chillers can be located on the roof of the building or in, in the cases we see here at the Campbell's plant in Napoleon, um, the, the chiller is, is placed simply on a concrete pad um, beside the building. And so I think um, there's there's a very good potential for, for this type of package to be used in, in just this type of application, mostly because um, the location is very flexible. Um, and what that means is even in the situation where there's a central machinery room, the addition of a chiller can allow the chiller to be located closer to the load, um, closer to the, the cooling requirement, as, as was the case here. Um, you can really shorten the, the pipe runs for the, the glycol, um, as it is in this case, um, by, by being flexible in the chiller location. So, yeah, I do, I do think pack, package systems and their flexibility are going to really lend themselves to, to this type of application. Right, and we should mention also that... Um, in addition to being a replacement for HFC chillers, also R22 chillers, of which there are still many uh, out there, and this is um, a good replacement for those. Uh, yeah, in terms of um, in terms of the Campbell soup plant um, in Napoleon, and by the way, if you're in that area, there's a huge um, uh, replica of a. Campbell's tomato soup can outside the building for <laughs> for tourists, uh, but in any event, um, at, and you mentioned Derek that um, they they have uh, uh, ammonia um, uh, skids in their machine room, but in this case, the uh, load uh, for the labeling p- uh, part of the building was so far away from the machine room that it was impractical to. Um, to pipe glycol all the way from the machine room uh, to this part of the building. So that's why the, uh, the Azane uh, chiller, the package chiller that could be placed outside the building, you know, right adjacent to the load, was, uh, was a perfect fit. And that's why they, they selected it. Um, the flexibility uh, was what they needed. Um, and, uh, you know, the, that was one of the prime uh, motivators uh, for, for using this. And I think the, um, they see this flexibility, uh, you know, where their machine room, um, you know, where they have installed low charge, uh, they have installed low charge, um, units on skids in their machine room that, that do supply, uh, uh, chilled glycol to, to do air conditioning in, in, uh, in certain facilities. But, um, this, uh, really extends, uh, the potential for that, to again places where it would be inconvenient to 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 use the machine room and um, and that's what they did in the case of the, of the Napoleon plant. Yeah, and when we're looking at uh, ammonia being used in in new applications, you know, in, in this particular case, this this is an already this is already an industrial facility, um, and and so the use of ammonia in this type of package is not such a stretch. But when we do look to to other applications, and and, and Michael, you mentioned the uh, Marks and Spencer's department store in the UK where uh, a low-charge ammonia package was used on the roof. This is where you're starting to put ammonia into applications where it's closer to the general public and it's in applications where um, perhaps the, um, the, the the people working near that um, refrigeration plant are not so used to ammonia being present. So this is where uh, low-charge ammonia definitely has its advantages because of the, the safety 
benefits of having less ammonia present, um, but also the the regulatory advantages of, of having a much lower charge. You know, having said that, uh, the, the low charge does help with, with some uh, regulatory challenges, but when you get down to um, city codes and fire codes, you, you can still uh, find some barriers to, to the implementation of, of ammonia. So I do, I do think we've got um, some way to go when it comes to um, the various codes addressing these low-charge ammonia packages uh, properly. Right. Yeah. Um, safety is always paramount when you're dealing with, with ammonia. Um and as I understand it, Azane has designed the chillers with four levels of safety to keep the ammonia contained inside the system in the event that the, pr- the pressure in the system rises. They also have uh, ammonia detectors at the compressor, evaporator, and relief header detecting uh, as low as 25 parts per million. So uh, it is a very, um, very safe yeah, what you're describing there for this package and for the, the other types of low-charge ammonia package, um, regardless of the application, what we're really dealing with here is an, an industrial ammonia design um, that's being applied to different applications. So really these levels of safety uh, and ammonia detection um, and relief valves and everything else, that that is... Uh, an industrial standard ammonia design. So uh, I, th- I think that that gives um, end users a lot of comfort when they're considering this type of system. Right. Uh, it's also worth noting that um, these are very efficient uh, units. Um, and uh, according to Azane, uh, this chiller is performing as planned. Uh, it's actually going to be supporting three an- air handlers. It currently supports one. But at full load with three air handles, seasonal performance will be close to 0.75 kilowatts uh, per ton of refrigeration. And that's without VFD drives on the compressors. So it's kind of a a pretty efficient baseline uh, baseline system. And um, it's also worth noting this is an air-cooled system, meaning the maintenance is uh, much, much less burdensome than with a water-cooled or or a... uh, evaporative cooled system. Um, the evaporative cooled systems may be uh, a little higher in efficiency um, than air cooled, but they have many other uh, costs associated with them, such as, uh, you know, uh, chemical water treatment and such. So, so again, it's a, um, an, efficient, uh, an efficient solution uh, with low maintenance, so a, a good total cost of ownership argument compared to uh, HFC systems. Yeah, and I, th- I think, Michael, you, you mentioned there um, in, in passing that evaporative evaporative systems are, are more efficient than air-cooled systems, and I, I do think that's proven to be the case uh, during peak ambient conditions in the summer, uh, but there have been various studies over the past few years, and one in particular that's worth mentioning is a study um, by Doug Scott of of Vacom Technologies which was presented at the IIAR conference a couple of years ago comparing uh, evaporative and air-cooled systems Um, and and what that showed is over the the, the course of the year on an annualised basis there are some energy benefits um, for moving to air-cooled against evaporative even in some of the, the warmer climates um, and, and that comes down to some of the, the off-season and, and part-load 
performance uh, conditions. So um, there, there's definitely a bigger picture there when it comes to the comparison of evaporative and air-cooled. Um, but this is, of course, something that, that's often studied in, in detail uh, on, a, on a case-by-case basis. But it's de- definitely a very interesting topic. Absolutely. So uh, I think um, bottom line is uh, uh, low-charge ammonia chillers uh, represent a, a new path for natural refrigerants uh, in North America as a replacement for HFC and R22 chillers as well as a, uh, a, a supplement to um, industrial sites, uh, a supplement to the machine rooms uh, used at, mach- at industrial sites. So um, we're going to wrap up that discussion and move on to uh, a look at what Hannaford Supermarkets is doing in New England. Hannaford Supermarkets um, was actually the first food retailer to install a transcritical CO2 booster system in a supermarket in the United States back in July 2013 at their store in Turner, Maine. Uh, they, They installed... A system, a transcritical system, at a second store in North Berwick, Maine, in 2015, and this year, for the first time, actually uh, retrofitted uh, an existing store with a transcritical system in Raymond, New Hampshire. I spoke to um, Harrison Horning, uh, who oversees refrigeration for the uh, Hannaford chain uh, at the FMI Energy Show last month, and he gave me uh, an interesting update. Uh, he said that the First two systems in the new stores are working very well. Uh, they're, you know, reliable and um, from a maintenance uh, aspect are comparable to any other store in the chain. And from energy uh, aspect, they're running a little bit higher, but that's partly because the standard prototype that Hannaford has traditionally used is optimized for its climate. Uh, and so even, you know, coming close to that was... Uh, uh, satisfactory for Hannaford, and of course n- they have not used features like parallel compression, adiabatic gas coolers or ejectors, or direct heat reclaim in the first two stores. They are using uh, parallel compression in the um, retrofit store. So they'll, uh, you know, he's going to, and he expects the performance there to be better than the earlier system. So again, um, we're seeing transcritical. You know, competitive in just the basic booster system, but with these uh, additional components, uh, the um, efficiencies are expected to be superior. I think that's uh, an important message to get out there. Yeah, I think that's a really an important point when we're discussing the comparison between a transcritical CO2 system and a baseline HFC system. I think there, there's there's two points I want to make here. Um, you know, the first is that in Harrison's case, or in Hannaford's case, you know, they've been installing these systems since 2013. And as you rightly state, um, Harrison admits that in some of these comparisons, they're not um, using a, an optimized CO2 system with parallel compression or adiabatic gas cooling um, or, or even the use of ejectors or heat reclaim. So we know that there are some fairly significant energy efficiency enhancements available for these um, CO2 systems and these are all technologies that have been coming onto the market in recent years Um, so it's important to consider that uh, when when having this discussion. 
and and, and on that topic I've often heard people say well you know you, you could make that argument for transcritical CO2, but we could also um, apply the same optimization to um, a, a, an HFC type system. So, so why why can't we throw that into the mix? And to that, I would say um, I, I think Harrison makes the, the the very good point. You know, we're optimizing these CO2 systems because they are the future of refrigeration and food retail. Um, you know, Harrison says that um, in terms of overall greenhouse gas emissions um, you're way ahead when you use co2 so this is this is why we're optimizing the co2 systems because it is it is the refrigerant that, that that's becoming the default for these applications so it doesn't make it really doesn't even make sense to talk about optimizing the old standard what we're talking about is optimizing the new standard and we're finding that the the efficiency is is very favorable so i'm very encouraged by it Right, and it sounds like he has his eye on a couple of other stores that could be candidates for, for retrofits, and they're, they're sort of seeing how this current system runs, and, and then we'll move forward from there. Absolutely true. In fact, you know, they have established Transcritical as their standard for new stores. Uh, the thing is, they're not building a lot of new stores, so that's why they're looking at retrofits as a as an avenue for installing more transcritical. And they've already, yeah, they've, they've, they have identified a number of stores that meet their criteria for retrofits, which is simply that the equipment is at the end of the life and the piping is at the end of life, and they have space where they can conveniently install a transcritical rack in parallel. So uh, they're looking forward uh, to doing that because, uh, as Harrison told me, there, I mean, there are thousands of existing stores uh, with aging equipment where the opportunity to move to a f- future-proof uh, natural refrigerant CO2 is, is uh, available. And as you say, Derek, um, you know, despite the uncertainty now in terms of the regulatory climate, uh, clearly the handwriting on the wall says that, uh, you know, HFCs are, are on the um, – Way out, and uh, you, you know you can't really uh, you can't really depend on that on them being available in the future. Whereas natural refrigerants are literally future proof, and uh, you know are, you know satisfy any any environmental measure. So that's why uh, Harrison and or Hannaford Supermarkets has committed to it as a standard and is looking for more opportunities in retrofits. All right. Well, now. Um, we're going to hear from Andre Patanaud of Emerson, uh, who's on the phone, and he's going to talk about um, a guest column he wrote in the current issue of Accelerate America, looking at how uh, CO2, traditionally used in retail food settings, is uh, being adapted for industrial uh, applications. And similarly, uh, ammonia, which is traditionally used in industrial, is uh, crossing over to food retail. So um, we'll hear now from Andre, who uh, is going to talk about it with Derek and Elise. All right. So, hi, we're here with Andre uh, Patnud. He's the Director of Food and Retail Growth Strategy for Emerson's Commercial and Residential Platform. Uh, he wrote an article about the use of, of ammonia and CO2 and how the applications of those refrigerants are sort of sort of swapping is that is that right andre yes absolutely um it's it's an interesting time where there's a convergence that's starting to emerge with co2 and ammonia in a uh 
in the large commercial, small industrial type of uh, space. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Andre. And it's something we've been seeing, um, you know, especially in, in, in the past 12 or 18 months, there have been several projects we've heard about where, you know, whether that's ammonia being used in, in more of a commercial setting or, or CO2, um, you know, CO2 scaling up in some ways into more industrial uh, applications. Um, but, you know, what, what do you see as being the, the, the challenges to, to each of those transitions? Do, do you see that there, there are some barriers there? I, I, think, it's, I think it's from the end user's perspective. Um, the end user wants to go from a natural solution, potentially that they have today, to another natural solution. So if they're using ammonia, but they're concerned about the OSHA regulations, which are, you know, it, having them enforce documentations for systems over 10,000 pounds, really make sure their documentations are there, and they're susceptible to uh, do the NEP program, the National Emphasis Program, where, you know, that they could have spot inspections, that they may say, well, you know what? Instead of approaching a 10,000-pound limit, I need to add refrigeration to my facility, so I'm going to look at another natural refrigerant, which is CO2. Um so for them, it makes a whole lot of sense. Stay with naturals, they're used to it. Move to another natural, which is very efficient, will, will answer their, their refrigeration needs. Uh, so that, that's one side of the equation from industrial, going more to that commercial type refrigerant almost. Um, and the commercial space, what's interesting, even on the commercial space now, uh, because ammonia is very, very efficient, it's natural. Maybe they were using R22 in their large commercial areas or, or 404A for that matter. And they're looking at uh, new energy efficient um, options. Now they're saying, well, maybe using an ammonia chiller, low charge ammonia chiller, having it installed outside, chilling CO2 or brine as, as a secondary fluid, and pumping that cold fluid into my refrigerated space is an option. So it depends on on the end user's uh, situation in each case, but there are <laughs> requirements on both sides of the fence, and that's why it's interesting that commercial contractors now are starting to add some ammonia-type resources to their to their team, and then the ammonia guys are starting to add commercial-type resources to this team because controllers are slightly different, architectures are slightly different, and neither one of them want to lose that convergence business. Yeah, you've raised a, a couple of really good points there, Andre. Um, and funnily enough, just before you joined us on the call, we've just been discussing uh, with Michael our cover story uh, of this month's Accelerate America, which focused on the use of a low-charge ammonia chiller uh, cooling a, a secondary glycol system uh, to provide uh, that glycol to air handlers um, in, a, in a food production facility. So that, that's an example of uh, low-charge ammonia uh, being used in, in an air conditioning type application. Um, and, and so you're absolutely right. Um, we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, contractors are becoming aware of, of this and uh, they're, they're, they're tooling up uh, appropriately so that they're ready to, to answer um, whatever um, challenges their their customers are facing. Well, you're absolutely right. The progressive contractors that are always trying to differentiate themselves from the pack, 
are looking ahead. They're seeing these trends develop. And before they actually start losing business, they're saying, hey, I'm going to staff up properly. I'm going to cross-train my team. I'm going to learn about ammonia if I don't already know about ammonia, or I'm going to learn about CO2 if I don't already know about CO2. I'm going to make sure I have the right people on my staff so we can effectively help our customers when they come to us with a, with a, a, a different uh, requirement, if you will. Yep. And, and do you see there being any particular characteristics of, of either ammonia or CO2, which uh, might point to that really um, becoming the leader um, in, in, in all these type of applications at some point in the future? Or do you think there will always be space for both? I think there will always be space for both. As we start seeing acceptance in CO2 and even larger systems, larger systems, supermarket systems, even smaller equipment, that acceptance is growing. Of course, it started from Europe and, and, and moved its way around the world and now into North America. So that acceptance continues to grow. Um, ammonia has been around for well over 100 years, so there's no reason why ammonia won't be around in the future. Um, however, there, there's more... There's more emphasis, I suppose, around that 10,000-pound limit around OSHA, and, and it's got end users looking at, well, I love ammonia. It's very efficient. Um, yes, it's self-alarming, and uh, so, but so, so how, do we, how do we stay with ammonia but mitigate those risks? Couldn't agree more, Andre, and that's where um, a lot of the, the low-charge ammonia technology um, really is 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 being exactly. developed to help um, answer that need and and whether that's low charge ammonia on its own or ammonia um as part of a, a cascade system uh, with a secondary co2 loop um yeah we, we see um a, a lot more of that happening i, I think it's a uh, very positive as um designers are looking to mitigate some of the the risks associated with what is um, otherwise a, a really excellent refrigerant right mm -hmm. absolutely so the industry is uh is is dealing with that and and adapting to uh the growing trends mm -hmm. for sure mm -hmm. well thank you so much andre we really appreciate you taking some time to chat sure, with us no problem all right well thank you very much andre and uh thanks derek and elise for that great interview um that wraps up this month's accelerate america podcast i'd like to thank my colleagues derek and elise as well as andre uh, and thank you for listening We'll catch you next month on the Accelerate America podcast. 